I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm coming to you live this week from beneath a blanket because our studio is undergoing some construction over the next few weeks. So we're huddled in a spare room, but we've got a special episode. We're turning the reins over to Jessica Lesson. She's a CJR board member and founder of the powerhouse Silicon Valley outlet, The Information. CJR and The Information co-hosted a conference on technology and journalism out in San Francisco last week. And we've got an excerpt from Lesson's interview with the event's headline guest, longtime Facebook executive, Adam Masseri. Facebook has obviously been in the spotlight recently, and its relationship with the media is a big reason why. Until recently, Masseri was in charge of the platform's newsfeed, placing him at the center of those conversations. Lesson presses him on Facebook's responsibility to publishers and whether the marriage between journalism and the social media platform can be saved. Now, here's Jessica and Adam. I wanted to start with a broad question about um, how would you characterize the current relationship between Facebook and the news industry? How would I characterize yeah. it? Uh, it's complicated. Okay. To use a Facebook... Uh, that was actually one of the... That's options. an inside joke. If, actually, oh, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean it that way. I actually just meant it's complicated. <laughs> but in the early days, I think this is still the case on Facebook. On your profile, you could say your relationship status. And one option was it's complicated. I, I think it is complicated. I think the news industry, as you know much better than I do, is going through a massive amount of change in a very short amount of time. Facebook is part of that. I think this all sits in the broader context of the internet and how that is changing how people consume not only news but all kinds of information. It's turning a lot of the business models um, in the news industry upside down. and. We, we are part of that. We are a large internet platform. There's a lot of people consume a lot of news on Facebook. And so um, that, is, that is the sort of umbrella that sits over everything within the relationship. Uh, for Newsfeed specifically, I think news is always going to be part of Newsfeed. Our mission is to connect people with the stories that they find meaningful. And for a lot of people, that is news. But how we do that is different than how people would like than what publishers have always done historically. Um, and we're trying to figure things out. We don't always get things right. We make mistakes. We're trying to do better and be more transparent about what we do and how we do it. But the relationship is complicated. And then there, there are areas where I think we've got really strong partnerships. And there's areas where the relationships are incredibly antagonistic and everything in between. What do you think, um, what separates those two? I mean, from your perspective, what are the fruit, what are the criteria, elements of the fruitful relationships? And then, you know, why, again, why are publishers in such, such different places when it comes to Facebook? I think one of the patterns is relation, publishers that have uh, a good relationship with the platform, not necessarily with the people who work at the company, but with the platform at large, tend to have very clear opinions about what their business model is and then how Facebook can help them and their business. So whether you're, you know, you, obviously the information is a subscription-based business. So, and I think from talking to you in the past, you see Facebook as pretty much an acquisition channel for subscribers and that's maybe 90% of the value that you get. That's very clear, that's very clarifying and I think that helps it that helps you figure out how to leverage the platform and how not to leverage the platform. 
for advertising businesses, it's more complicated because there is no way for me to guarantee stable distribution for any one publisher. It's just not possible. Even if we stop changing how ranking worked entirely, people's interests change, the news changes every day, there's all sorts of comp competition effects. Um, so distribution is gonna be volatile. And so for advertising-based businesses, we need to be part um, of the strategy, not their whole strategy. Um, and we don't actually necessarily even need to be part, but we should be considered as part. And for the ad-based business model publishers that understand that and know how to leverage the platform, they experiment, they learn, they iterate, they tend to, they tend to have a better relationship with the company and then those who do things differently, less so. Um, but it's really just about really clear principles about how to leverage the platform based on what you're trying to be as a business and what, trying, what kind of change you're trying to affect in the world. So the publishers I talk to, and I know you talk to, want more money from Facebook. Yeah. They say, give us a greater cut of the ads. Um, they say, pay us directly like a cable model. What's your reaction to that? I think that at the end of the day, unless you are a subsidized um, publisher, like we talked about the BBC a bit earlier, there's other examples too, right? Like in, I was in Denmark, uh, I think three, four weeks ago, and they also do a lot of, I think, good work around subsidizing good journalism or, or high quality news. Um, but if you're not, you're a business. And news, good news is expensive to create. And I, it makes sense to me that they look at Facebook as a potential revenue channel. In terms of just paying publishers for news, I don't think it scales particularly well. There are too many publishers in too many countries all over the world for us to do that at scale. Um, it's never gonna be a way to support the entire industry. We don't actually even make enough money to support the entire news industry, even if every money dollar we made went to the news business. You could, that might not be true. I think it's true. I think it's true. It's a, a, it's a big industry. But if the, the other thing that is important to understand is, though news is, is important to us, and I heard you guys talking about that earlier, it's news publishers aren't the only constituent that we are um, beholden to, right? We have a, there's the people, there's other types of publishers. Um, there are the people who use the products every day. There are advertisers, et cetera. And so we think that the more scalable way of supporting the industry is through building monetization products. So either trying to support subscriptions first class, like we're experimenting with very publicly right now, video monetization, instant article monetization, and then with attention, with distribution. Um, but that, again, is going to be um, volatile. So we have to do better to set expectations about exactly that. Um, now, we can experiment with other models, and we do occasionally, but I think at the end of the day, we're, we've got over 2 billion people who use the product. We've got tens of millions of what we call pages, which are essentially business profiles on Facebook. Most of the big ones are actually publishers. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to be able to engage in a direct financial relationship with all of them. So um, Facebook is doing a little bit around video, though. So you've announced and watch Facebook yeah. video of, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars. I don't know if the number is public, but in funding news video. So should we think of that as an experiment, a step towards seeing if funding news more directly scales, just an effort to boost the video business and compete with YouTube? So generally when we experiment with funding content directly, it's usually around, and this is the case in the watch um, sort of experiment that you're referencing, that we're trying to do two things. 
One is, is learn. Try to figure out you know, whether or not the, the model can work, but also can, what happens in the actual product. Does the experience, is the experience engaging for people, et cetera? But the other is to, in this case, is to bootstrap an ecosystem, right? So newsfeed is where the vast majority of attention in Facebook is, exists today. Watch is new, some people use it, some people don't. And so really for watch, I think it's gonna need a critical mass of content that people care about if people are gonna use it at scale. And so the idea here is not only with news, but with other types of content or in other verticals to experiment with whether or not we can sort of bootstrap that ecosystem. So not something that we should expect more of. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I think that if it works well, we, all options should be on the table. But again, I really think the more scalable solutions are going to be monetization products and just general distribution. Matthew had a CJR article today that talked about if you sort of tally the journalism initiatives of Facebook and Google together, about half a billion dollars um, going into the, I think, Google, uh, that has been announced too, so I think we have to be skeptical of that. But yeah. um, You should always ask over what period yes, of time. Yes, that is a great point as well. Um, but I don't, I mean, it's a question on the minds of a lot of us around, um, you know, every question from what strings are attached to just, I think, as Amir said, if we can hire 50 great journalists, why shouldn't we? Uh, you know, to the extent you think about it, I mean, how, I think each individual initiative is really trying to bootstrap or try something. I'm not sure there's a grand master plan, but um, do you sort of think about the input impact that tech companies can have in funding journalism? And, and how, how do you think about that? I don't have a great answer for this. I, I, we are interested in supporting journalism in all sorts of different ways. Um, direct funding, whether it's the research or, um, or in sort of more content-oriented contracts. And you're why are before. you guys interested? I should have asked that. Because it, news, well, one, news is incredibly important in the world. I actually really believe that informing the, the populace, as you guys said earlier, is important. But two, it matters to the people who use our product. And we are, someone said this earlier, I forget who it was, maybe it was, maybe it was Vivian, that if you work at a news organization, your sort of reason to come into work every day is to inform everybody or inform the populace. That is not our main reason for coming into work every day. I agree with that wholesale. We're trying to connect people with, in, with information, with stories, with news, with friend content that they find meaningful. So news is part of that. It's not the whole thing. But it is a part of that, and it's an important part of that to people. So for that reason, it's also important to our business. Um, so it's that it's both it's important to society, but it's also important to the people who use our product. And if they're not finding value in the product, in you know, in coming to Facebook, then they're not going to use Facebook, and that's not going to be good for us in the long run either. So. Back to Newsfeed, what have you seen since announcing you were going to dial down the amount of public content, including news from Newsfeed? I've seen a lot of, what have I seen? So let me, let, me put, let me put this in context a little bit. So we didn't go into this thinking, you know what we'd like to do this year? We'd like to dial down the amount of public content because that's going to go over really well with all of our constituents. <laughs> um, what we were focused on was trying to listen to the feedback from the people that, about who are using our product every day. And what we were hearing was that the main reason that they come to Facebook is to connect with friends and family, particularly ones that live far away, right? We both live on the other side of the country from where we grew up. You probably have a similar experience that I do. It's a great way to you know, see what's happening with your family. That is 
the primary value proposition of Facebook. Uh, that is, when we ask people why they use the platform, the number one answer that we get. And we were hearing that, that the, those stories were getting crowded out by a lot of content that people were consuming passively. Um, video actually a lot, but also articles too. And so what we tried to do was shift ranking and how we do what we do to put more emphasis on connecting people, on are we going to facilitate a conversation between friends, are we going to facilitate, um, whether that's in comments or messages, or other forms of connections or interactions. And because if you look at, on a per story basis, friend content tends to facilitate more interactions than public content. And if you look on a media type basis, photos tend to facilitate more interactions than links, for instance. What that then created was this downstream effect where on, where on average, friend content did more well, group content did more well, and public content, especially video, which is very passive in its sort of nature, did less well. And so what have we seen since then? A lot of criticism uh, from the publishing industry, which I think is to be expected, and we knew that going in. But we have to do right by the people who use our product every day and listen to their feedback, so we made that decision consciously. But we've also seen that people are actually connecting more. They're having more conversations. They're having longer conversations. The ways we try to measure the quality of conversations seem to be going up as well. But again, it's only, it's only been a few months, so it's still early. So I don't want to jump to any conclusions. I'd, I'd really like to see how this year plays out and then you know, reassess. And so something sort of related but different is the idea of a trusted publisher that you've kind of are experimenting with or int yeah. introduced. Can you sort of explain what that concept is and that we take it from there? Yeah. So we operate at a, just a really massive scale. There's about, I think, about a billion things posted a day um, and from many tens of millions of publishers. So we can't really know for sure who's trustworthy and who's not. It's not possible. We couldn't hire enough people to just go and read all the things and make those decisions the way a journalist would. And it's, it's not that we don't think the way journalists do it is great. We think it is. It just doesn't scale at the level, at the, to, the, to the size of our platform. So what we've tried to do is figure out ways of, someone in the back there talked about the wisdom of the crowd or the ignorance of the masses. Were those the words before? We try to figure out how to focus more on the former and avoid the latter and design a ranking change that would be, one, try to understand the wisdom of the masses, but two, be difficult to game. And so what we did is we actually asked people what they find trustworthy. But a common misconception is that this is just a, popu a popularity contest, and it's not. If you get the most you know, people who say that you're trusted, that doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be trusted more. In fact, depending on who those people are, you might actually end up being trusted less. So what we do instead is we try to look for a given publisher how wide a range of a variety of types of readers are there that trust this publication. If it's, it's very difficult as a publisher, it seems, to be trusted by a broad variety of types of readers. That's much more difficult than being trusted by a very avid set of your readers and then everybody else thinks that you're you know, untrustworthy. And we did that because it's much more difficult to game and I think it got more we believe it gets more at the concept that we were trying to pursue, which is this, this concept of broad trust. This, because we're interested in this idea of common ground, a shared understanding of the world around you, um, hopefully in an effort to pull against polarization and towards depolarization. And so we do this currently in the US. We're trying to expand it into other countries. Um, I think it is 
uh, I think it's a good change. I think it actually really does help uh, where not only the publishers that seem to be broadly trusted do more well after this change, the ones that seem to be broadly distrusted do less well. But it's not perfect, right? Like a huge issue is it does nothing for the long tail or the torso of publishers because we don't have enough information about them to make a decision one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's the only thing that we're going to do. It's just one step on a longer path. There was some chart that was being circulated around that actually showed, I don't know the source of it, so it might not have been reliable, but it showed that publishers you think of as broadly trusted were hurt by it. And um, so I think it's important to separate different things. So there's a lot of different changes happening in ranking, and we're trying to explain all the major ones. There's, broad, there's the trustworthy work, there's the work around informative content, there's the work around local content, there's the work around connections. Um, and the net effect of all of them is difficult to tease apart. And that was actually based, if I remember correctly, not on you know, any Facebook data necessarily, but it was just on what's happening in the market. And what happens in the market is also, not only has to do with the ranking changes that we make at Facebook, but also the publisher's strategy, what people's interests are. You know, you know other things can change, you know, major events in the world. And so I'd be careful about reading into too much around one publisher compared to one other publisher, and I'd try and look more at overall trends, groups of publishers, um, or longer-term timeframes, et cetera. Because the other thing you have to be really careful about when you're comparing traffic you know, at, at day A and day B, or day one and day, you know, I don't know, 100, is distribution is very spiky. And so if you pick a peak or you pick a trough, you might end up with a really strange um, or inaccurate sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not consequence, but like, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll read something that's not actually yeah. the case. Now, I, I don't remember the specific data here, um, but, I, but I would be careful of attaching that data to specifically this one ranking change, which is one among many. Mm -hmm. And I think you said earlier, you guys feel based on what you're seeing that it's working, that, can you say, you think you yeah. mentioned, yeah. So measured by like, are people connecting more? Are they having more conversations? Are those conversations longer, et cetera? We are seeing that grow, but these things take time. And I think um, the real question is over the course of the whole year, does that continue to grow? Are there, are there other unforeseen consequences that we don't know about? We just try to keep a very close eye and make sure that the changes that we're making are having the intended effects. And intended effect is more time spent on Facebook? No, it's actually more connections between people. Um, we even announced when we started this that we actually expected time uh, to go down. Um, time well spent. Time well spent. Yeah. The idea is to focus <laughs> on time well spent. Or, and that's actually, that's, a, that's sort of an aspiration. And that means different things to different parts of the business. So for Newsfeed, that's about connections. For the news team, which is, a, you know, obviously we work very closely with the news team, it's about the focus on quality over quantity. For the integrity teams, which is what we call our sort of security teams, it's about doing more to reduce the spread of problematic content on the platform or problematic behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's like an overall aspiration or a theme for the year that means different things to different teams. Mm -hmm. So before, I want to get to fake news, but one more um, thought on this. I think several years ago, I think it was Amir here, wrote a story saying that people were posting less of like public content on Facebook, right? And that newsfeed was, I forget, what was the original content? Original content. So the idea was, um, you know, that it, by some measures, not all measures, but one measure, the active Facebook user wasn't 
posting a lot about themselves or things that they were finding. And that I think there's also been, you guys have talked a lot about this, this broader retreat on the internet to groups, messaging, and sort of more private sharing. So sort of wonder, A, are you seeing that? Did you see that? What, what's the trend? And kind of B, what does that mean for newsfeed as a product that we're also seeing the rise of um, smaller group sharing? I mean, it has big consequences. So I think that there's a few different things. So for original sharing in newsfeed, we're seeing that it's, you know, it's flat or growing or roughly flat, depending on where you look. But I think that that isn't as important as the overall picture if you take a step back. And if you look at how people share, there's two huge trends happening right now. One is messaging. Um, and it's actually mostly not small group messaging, though that's a big piece of it. And that's it looks like that's keeping pace with overall growth, but the amount of visual sharing people do in messaging is growing at an amazing pace. And then the other is, is sorry, the other is the stories format. Stories is very quickly becoming, if you look at across all of the apps for which we have information, um, I, it, I, I believe, I'm actually confident, it's gonna become the primary way people share. Uh, at least when they, the way they broadcast with a lot of friends. And just so people know, this was the Snapchat feature that Facebook yeah. mimicked. So so the way it works is you can post a story and it goes, you know, your friends can see it, but it doesn't show up in feed. It, you have to, it shows up in a row at the top of the app or on a tab on WhatsApp. It's different in different apps. But people have to decide that they want to go see your story and it's only around for a day. And most people focus on the ephemerality, the 24 hours, as the primary reason why people use it more. Um, but honestly, in all the qualitative research that we've done, the more important thing is that people feel like they're not bothering people, that it's pull, not push. And for that reason, it does great for the moments in between. I post ridiculous pictures of my boys that I don't think should be on my profile forever, um, but all the time. You probably see some of them. Um, and so it's just a broader set of use cases. And newsfeed is for moments that you want everyone to see, moments that you feel good having being around forever, proud moments, but also things like questions. Mm -hmm. I posted about, uh, apparently you have to go to the DMV to replace a license. I didn't know that. Sorry, <laughs> I'm a little ignorant over here. Uh, and I posted about that yesterday. And I have like 30 or 40 comments on this. People just giving me tips and tricks, like you gotta go to Burlingame, or you gotta go to San Mateo, you gotta get there at 7 a.m. That's the kind of thing that works really well in feed. Um, but I think stories is a broader, a broader use case. Um, so if you back all the way up, you're seeing um, what you're seeing in feed is you know roughly stable, and then what you're seeing is an amazing growth in stories and in messaging worldwide. So is there when do you predict that volumes of stuff posted in stories will eclipse volumes posted in feed? Soon. I mean, if you look at world, it varies a lot by country, um, and obviously we don't have information about all the different apps, but I think soon. The, and you asked originally, what does this mean for newsfeed? And I think that personal sharing and ori per original content, to use Amir's um, phrase, is always going to be an important part of what newsfeed is. Um, it's the value proposition that the company was built on, as I said before, and it's, I think, the anchor. But we also believe that newsfeed should be social, and that's what we're hearing from people. And so what we're hoping to, with this focus on connections this year, is help people have, you know, make connections or talk about or discuss things that matter to them, whether or not they are personal content or public content. Um, and you're also going to always have, in addition to this, public content, news that you read, videos that you watch, et cetera. But 
I believe that the future of Newsfeed is a place where you not only see personal moments, but you also discuss the moments that matter to you with either the people that matter to you or people just have people who have similar interests. Um, I think that's the direction we're headed. A huge percentage of Facebook's monetization is newsfeed. So yeah. what does that mean for the business? Well, I mean, as long as it's, newsfeed is healthy and growing, I think it's good for the business. Now you're asking about, now if, you, if you're asking about stories and messaging, stories, I think it's, a, it's much more clear. Stories monetizes through, through an ad model that works very similarly to how uh, newsfeed ads work, and I think that's actually going to be really healthy for the um, for the business. Not messenger necessarily, but messaging in general. Monetization is, I think, more complicated. We're, we've experimented with a number of different things. Some have worked better than others, but I think that there's very few companies in the world outside of China that make um, money really at scale on messaging services. So I think we're, it's still going to be interesting to see how those monetization strategies evolve over the next few years. Uh, back to news, and specifically fake news. Uh, you've been in the trenches on a lot of efforts to rethink how Facebook fights fake news over the past, since the election. Um, what did you miss initially, and what have you guys done since? I think we, we've been working on, we called it hoaxes back in the day. This is like three, four years ago now. And we did some work on it, but honestly, the work, we weren't, the level of investment wasn't commensurate with the scale of the challenge and the importance in the world. So I think that was the biggest miss. Um, there's more detailed tactical misses about motivations and what tactics work and what tactics don't, et cetera, but that was the big thing. It was just not fully appreciating how important the issue was or is. What we've done Why do you think Facebook missed that? Well, a number of reasons. I mean, i ask you a, counter, uh, a counter question. If I had asked you in I don't know, October of 2016, how likely you thought that false news or fake news was going to be the number one topic for six months after the election, how likely do you think you would have been to say yes? Probably not very likely, but I don't run Facebook. That's right? true. You know, and I'm not um, trying to put it on and I you. Don't, I mean, this isn't because I think, like the reason I'm asking is I think we see a pattern of um, all companies, but now tech companies with various blind spots around yeah, news administration. Absolutely. And I actually believe, you know, once they realize the severity of them, try pretty quickly to fix them. But um, there is this sense from the public at large and when it comes to trust that, you know, these blind spots at some point really chip away at that. So I, I think I'm interested in sort of the fake news strategy in particular, but also this, you know, like what is it about Facebook that company and the culture that, that this is a sort of perpetual issue. Yeah, so I'd say a few things. Um, I agree a thousand percent with your framing of blind spots. So I really, really worry about them because I actually have a lot of confidence in our ability at Facebook to address an issue once we've identified it. I am much more worried about the problems that we might not know about yet. And why we didn't think about it um, as as important as it was back then was because we weren't as focused on exactly that, on identifying those blind spots. We were focused more on how do we create more value for people and less on how do we mitigate the costs of what we do. And I think that's a thing that you've seen not only Facebook, but the tech industry at large, not a thing, a lesson that not only Facebook, but the industry at large has really learned over the last few years, is how to understand that responsibility and how to specifically not all, be careful to assume that 
connecting people or technology is just um, a force for good. Because technology or connecting people is, I mean, technology and connecting people, I'll say it's differently. Technology is, I don't think, good or bad in and of itself. It's how it's built, it's how it's used, it's the effects it has on the world that can be good or bad. And then whoever is working on a technology, whether it's, a, whether it's Facebook or any other company, has a responsibility for focusing on creating good, but also focusing on reducing any negative effects. And I don't think that was um, as core a part of how we thought about what we do, not only at Facebook, but in the Valley um, just a couple of years ago. Connecting people, I think, is similar. I do think connecting people inherently is good, but it also has negative consequences. So again, the same lesson applies. So what we've done since, just to get back to your first question, is try to take a sophisticated, but more importantly, a multi-pronged approach to addressing the issue. Because there is no silver bullet here. Um, there's no one thing that we can do that's gonna mean that you know, no hoax goes viral on Facebook. So we've tried to break the problem down. The first thing that we do is try and disrupt the incentives. Not all, but a lot of um, hoaxes on Facebook are financially motivated, not ideologically motivated. Spammers who create these, they like commission for $20 like, a, like a, an article, it's not an article, it's, it's a crazy statement in like three more, sorry, three more sentences, it's just a paragraph. And you get a link, you click on it, and then it goes to a web page that the spammer owns that's basically 90% ads. And they make, you know, if they make $21 per article, they're gonna do that all day long because they're essentially printing money at that point. So if we can make it so that they make less than $20, they're not gonna go away, but they're gonna do something different. So we're trying to disrupt those incentives, which is much easier for financially motivated actors than for ideologically motivated actors. That's the first thing. The second thing is better identifying that content once it's on our platform. Third party fact, the third party fact checking program gets the vast majority of the attention here because it's the most clear and easy to understand. But that's only in, I think, 10 or 11 countries right now, and we have to do things um, to try to better identify false news in countries where we don't have third-party fact-checking partners. Is that, it, there have been some griping consternation among the fact-checkers. They want more data from you guys. I mean, how do you, how do you assess sort of that experiment so far, and is it worth continuing and expanding? It's, I think it's definitely valuable and worth continuing. Um, we actually, it was about two months ago, had all of the fact-checkers from around the world all come together, and we did sort of like a session where we, we, we wanted to let them know what's coming up on our roadmap roadmap, hear from them about what was working, what was not for them. I don't think we can rely on it. Honestly, I think we need to design the system to assume nothing, no value comes out of that, because that's how you really need to treat all of these problems. Every part of the system needs to assume nobody else does their job, and then do everything that you can to address the issue. But I do think that program is very valuable, and we're definitely looking to expand it into more countries, and you'll see us do that over the latter half of this year. Um, so we try to identify that content either through partnerships or through looking for suspicious activity of a lot of people, you know, like it, click on it, go to it, then come back and dislike it. There's patterns there, making it easier for people to report things as false. And then you have to look at um, the things that get the most reports. A lot of people report things that fall, as false that are not false. But if you look at the things at the very top, they're very consistently either false or some other form of spam. And then you guys, you don't take them out. You just no, but we nuke their traffic. We downrank them yeah. very aggressively. But the other thing that we do is the third part. So disrupting the incentives, better identifying the problems, and then giving people more context about what they're reading. Because ultimately, a discerning reader is the sort of most effective, I don't know, deterrent here. 
that takes a long time. That has to do with media literacy and education, which we're also trying to figure out how we can help with. But for an immediate term, we're just, for now, focused on giving people more information about what they're reading so they can make more informed decisions about what to trust and what to share. Things, so now there's an article context here in the U.S., and we're looking to expand that to internationally, where on any link you can click and see information about the publisher, other articles that they've posted, where it was posted, and we're looking at other things that we can use as trust signals. And none of these things are going to fix the problem on their own. And I don't think there's any version of the world where there, is no, there are no hoaxes that anybody sees on Facebook. But our hope is that if we take this issue seriously and we take a when we approach the problem at all all three levels of the stack and we do a bunch of different work at each of those levels, that we can make a significant amount of progress reducing the distribution of false news on the platform. And I think we're making progress and we have a lot more to do, but it's only gonna happen if we were committed to this over the long haul. You know, I think I've heard you say this, but in some ways the false hoax, fake news, that's it's a bit easier in that it's it's somehow fraudulent, right? Yeah. There's a whole other category of content that is, you know, designed to provoke, sensationalize, um, maybe very borderline offensive to people based on their ideological views and that. I mean, how do you think about, in, in light of, too, what you're trying to do with time well spent and the experience, how does Newsfeed deal with that kind of content? Very carefully. Uh, I think this is an area where maybe it's important to start with acknowledging that we are a, a platform at a, a significant scale, which means that there are a lot of things that we could do that would be inappropriate given our scale. We're not gonna weigh in on, you know, on an ideological or political spectrum, for instance, ever. I don't think that's appropriate. That would, it, would, it would immediately blow up in our face, but it's, we don't wanna do it in the first place either. And so when you get into the gray area of opinion or you know, content that might be designed to provoke an, um, a response, there are certain time, at times when I think it would be appropriate for us to act, and there are certain times where it would not. And drawing that line is probably the most important um, thing that we do correctly and carefully. Now, the good news is... How do you do it? Well, you focus on making sure that if you're ever trying to address an issue, or if you're ever making a value judgment or you know you have a, a policy against a type of content that that is it, that it's appropriate given our scale and it, it you know it, and then we do it publicly um, because i think that scrutiny is actually a good thing so the good news is that a lot of content that provokes um, negative reactions uses either a lot of usually uses other tactics where we can go after it directly but for but we're never going to weigh in on just like this content is very partisan Weighing in on partisan content for being partisan, I think, is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But if it's clickbait, if it is, if it if it's misleading, if it's false news, if it's a low quality landing page, like what we talked about before, those are all things that I think are totally appropriate to address given our scale. And by the way, we hear very regularly from the people who use our product that they like us to address. Um, but if you're just going to have a really strong opinion about, I don't know the midterm elections, and maybe you say something in a um, provoking way, that is, that's okay, that's speech. Um, and we don't want to get in the way of that. And so we have to be very careful about where we, where we get involved and where we don't. Um, because all of this sits, for me, under the umbrella of polarization and depolarization, where our mission as a company is to try and bring people together. So we are 
we are anti-polarization and we are pro-depolarization. But how we pursue those goals um, is an area where it's super important that we're very careful. So what do you think are the limitations of the engagement model for sort of content creation broadly, right? I mean, with Facebook and, and Newsfeed, it sort of created incredible economic incentives around high engagement content, right? But is that, is that only a piece of it? I mean, if you're zooming way out and taking your Facebook hat off, um, and, and how does Facebook deal with that? And by the engagement model, you mean just ranking for content that people are going to engage with, and from a platform's perspective or from a publisher's perspective? Sort of from, from a platform perspective. So, yep. I mean, another way of saying it is like, is Facebook worried about missing out in some ways or depriving the world of content that just doesn't do well on an engagement metric? And maybe, maybe local news is a good example of that. Like yep. sort of what's the Facebook answer? So a few different things. One is on engagement, we, we are not perfect, right? We're not trying to show people content that they're just going to like or engage with. We're trying to show people content that they're going to find meaningful. But we can't know really what you're going to find meaningful because we can't walk around and talk to everyone one-on-one -on -one and understand that. So we look for proxies. Some of those proxies are like, yeah, did you, did you like a story or did you comment on a story? Some of them are, how long did you spend reading a story? But when we miss something, when, if local news doesn't do well, um, in ranking, and we hear, which we do hear from people that they care a lot about local news, then that's on us. We're making a mistake. We haven't figured out how to better understand people's interests. And we have to figure out how to do that better. And this, I think, has a lot to do with the tension between people's first order and second order preferences. First order preferences are like, oh, you know, I want to click on this right now. I like this thing right now. Second order preferences are I want to read more about I don't know, world news in general, because I want to have an opinion that's informed about what's happening. Um, first order preferences are much easier for us to measure, so they're much easier for us to optimize for. But that doesn't mean that they're the only thing that's important. In fact, they're definitely not. Now, how to measure and understand second order preferences is much more complicated. So that's an area where I think we've got a lot more work to do. So that's to start. Now, and actually, this is a good point to say. I mean, I think there's some misconceptions, too, about how Newsfeed works. So, I mean, obviously, it's an algorithm, but you have panels of people. Can you maybe talk a bit about that, too? Yeah. So, I'll back all the way up. Your Newsfeed is made up of stories from the publishers that you've decided to follow and the friends that you've made on Facebook. That is, by far and away, the most important input into what you see. When you open up Facebook, we then try to look at each and every story and make an educated guess about how interested you are in each and every one. And we do that through a variety of ways, but essentially we look at all of the information that we have, hundreds of thousands of signals, and we use that to make a few dozen predictions. So for a story of my son, Nico, we will, it's gonna show up in your newsfeed because we are friends on Facebook. Um, we will predict how likely you are to like or comment on that story. But if I shared a link to the information, we'd actually also predict how likely you would be to say that story was informative, which might be pretty high. Um, and then we value those things, and, and we roll them up into a number that represents how interested we think you are in that story. And then we order stories by those scores. And we do this to try to make the most of your time, because the average person on Facebook has many thousands of things that they could read, and they only read a few hundred. 
Um, and so we want to make sure you don't miss anything that you find really important. Do you think, um, we talked about this earlier, do you think that's like, that people expect to see everything, that, that filtering yes. is duping? I think a lot of people expect that everything in, everything that their friends post and the publishers post is in their feed. Now, every story from every one of your friends actually is in your feed. You might not get to it because you might not keep scrolling, um, but those are all there. That's not true for page content, which is what we call business profiles, because they post so much content that if we did that, feed would very quickly become entirely overwhelmed with public content, and we know that's not why people come to Facebook in the first place. But I think that that expectation is not is pervasive. I don't know if it's 30% or 50% of people that expect that, but it's, it's a large number. Um, but in ranking, what we're also trying to do, just to answer your previous question, is understand not only what people do, but also what people say. So we ask people questions. So like one way we do that is through um, the informative ranking change. So we ask people what they find informative, tens of thousands a day. We look for patterns, try to value similar content, but we predict it for you as an individual. It's personalized. The other thing that we do is we just ask questions about their feed in general. Do you, do you want to see the story in your newsfeed? Did you feel good about your experience overall? And we see how people's sentiment changes over time to make sure that we are not over-optimizing for what people do, but we also understand whether or not we are creating something that people feel better about. Um, and we do both because neither is perfect, so we have to try to approach it from both angles. Sounds kind of exhausting, but it's very slow. Um, okay, I want to return back to the monetization point um, around news and for publishers, because actually I think that's what a lot of this comes down to. And I mean, I, I think there's a sort of a different way of framing it, but there's a sentiment among publishers that Facebook is making money off our content because it's showing ads in newsfeed, um, and that you know is that publishers sort of owed money because, again, Facebook's business model is benefiting from news content. I just wanted to see how you sort of respond to that sentiment. I understand it. I think that fundamentally, if you're going to, as a publisher, put your stories, your hard-earned content on our platform, it is reasonable to expect some value back. Um, and I think it's also reasonable for us at Facebook to expect that if you don't get value back, that you're not going to post on our platform in the first place. Now that value could be financial, or that could be attention, which then could translate into financial value later, or it could be something else. Now, if it's financial, maybe, it, the, the, I know people sometimes ask, can we just write people checks? I don't think, as I said before, that scales, but there's other ways to produce financial value for publishers, either directly through monetization products or indirectly through attention. And I think some publishers do so well. I mean, subscribers actually is one that I don't think we, talk about enough in conversations like this, usually, yes, we are working to try and support subscriptions more first class in the product. But there's a lot of publications that have really high ROI on just our ads product, running ads that are hyper. Yeah, but that's us paying you. Yes, you paying us. But, it's, but, it's a, but it is, and that's good for our business, and I want to acknowledge that. But if you can make $2 for every dollar that you spend on advertising on Facebook, that's a win for you as well. Um, now, that might not make sense for all publishers, you, you might find that you get better return per dollar of marketing dollar for you on a different platform somewhere else. That's okay. You're going to make your decisions based on what works and what doesn't for your business. But there are a lot of publishers that do really well on the ad side um, in terms of getting subscribers, and that's fundamentally value at the end of the day um, for the business. Now, 
newsfeed also can create value, so I'm not saying it should always be ads, but I do think that is an important part of the equation that we don't talk about as much. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to Jessica Lesson and Adam Masseri for their conversation and for all those who attended the conference out in the Bay Area. Please check out all the great work we've got up at CJR.org and we'll see you next week.